Fault protection forms one of the most commonly issued set of citations that OSHA issues in any given year. But in addition, over the past recent years, there's been a push by OSHA to issue citations against an employer who is not the employer of a worker who engaged in the alleged conduct that forms the subject of a, a citation. For example, general contractors and subcontractors, franchisors and franchisees, um, co-located employers at a single work site, or anytime one employer engages a vendor or a service provider to provide services on the same site as an employer's own workers. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And one small employer in Pennsylvania who decided to fight back when issued a citation for alleged conduct engaged in, allegedly by the workers of another employer. Uh, that's the subject of today's OSHA 3030. I'm Manish Rath. This is the November 15th, 2023 episode of the OSHA 3030. Well, welcome everyone to the OSHA 3030. As I said, I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney at the law firm Keller and Heckman. I've been engaged in the field of occupational safety and health law for almost all of my 28 years of practice. And we are an administrative law firm. Our home office is Washington, D.C., with offices in San Francisco, Shanghai, Brussels, elsewhere. And I'm joined by one of the outstanding OSHA law attorneys here at Keller and Heckman and a dear friend, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, welcome and thank you for joining today's yeah. OSHA 3030. Thanks for having me, Manish. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. Taylor, we've got a great subject today. This goes to citing employers that are not the employer of the worker who's the subject of, of a, a allegation that forms the basis of an OSHA citation. It's a tricky area of law, and this case represented, I think, a really strongly articulated analysis of the issues at stake when OSHA tries to include other employers. Uh, so why don't we talk about first a roadmap of what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so the first thing that we're going to do is just go through the companies and the facts um, of this case today, which is Ireland Contracting versus Secretary of Labor. Uh, we'll then get into a discussion of OSHA's three main arguments as to why they thought that Ireland contracting was the proper entity to cite in this case. Um, we'll then go through an analysis of the administrative law judge's decision on whether or not uh, he agreed with OSHA's arguments. And then, as always, we'll wrap up with some practical takeaway items for, for the employer community out there. Right. We have a, a new segment at the end that we've known for the past few years um, called Off the Record. We're going to suspend that today. This is pre-recorded on Monday. November 13th for the November 15th episode. So so in those occasions where we pre-record, we, we don't do the off-the-record session. That is live and strictly for our live participants in the webinar. And uh, it's a great opportunity. Our participants who who join that really love it. And they, they ask that we continue it. And we will do so. Uh, there are some scheduling uh, opportunities to pre-record. This is one of them. Uh, so we will resume that the very next occasion that we do this on the scheduled live date. Uh, with that said, let's get into the facts. Let me start by saying, Taylor, that this takes place in a suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, this is the setting for our story today. And one small employer, Ireland Contracting, uh, who who engages in 
uh, roofing renovation, uh, re-roofing uh, services and roofing services for new construction in that community, in the in the Pine Creek community, Gibsonia. Uh, others may know neighboring towns like Cranberry Township. Again, about 20 minutes, 25 minutes due north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, and so what we wanted to do just to set the stage was just to provide a little bit of context on, on the relationships between the parties here. And so it's important to remember uh, for this case, Ireland Contracting is the general contractor, as you just mentioned, Monish. And then b beneath them, in this case, um, they, they contract out to two subcontractors. So Integrity Construction, LLC, and then William Miller Construction, LLC. Uh, Integrity is, is the subcontractor responsible for work at the 4108 uh, Fairway Drive worksite. Um, for reference, just for ease, we'll, we'll just call that the 4108 worksite. And then William Miller Construction is responsible for work at the 4115 worksite. And just so just to, in case, you know, throughout the today's program, we throw out William Miller or, or WM for short or Integrity. I uh, just wanted to provide a little bit of context on that. Yeah, these are the two subcontractors. Mr. Ireland, who founded Ireland Contracting years ago, used to do his own roofing work right. with his own crew and then migrated into strictly being a marketing uh, agency who would uh, engage with the homeowners or the builders, secure the jobs, and then he would farm them out. He would subcontract them to subcontractors. Some of them were subcontractors that he worked with on an ongoing basis, farmed out a lot of work. Integrity and William Miller were two such examples. Easily 40% of these two subcontractors' work came from Ireland, sub, uh, Ireland general contracting. Right. But Ireland never engaged it at this juncture uh, never engaged in, in any actual roofing work of its own. It was doing the marketing, the contract with the uh, project owner, and then the contract with the subcontractor. And then that was the end of their their uh, responsibility. They also, to the extent that subcontractors needed equipment or trailers, et cetera, it might provide that, but it was not actually doing any roofing work. That's correct. To continue to go through the facts here, so with respect to the actual allegations. Um, so the 4108 worksite, which was had integrity construction employees, they were the subcontractor um, at this worksite. Um, a compliance officer <clears throat> inspected the worksite after receiving a complaint uh, of workers on the roof um, without fall protection. Um, so you could actually see a picture of the house right here. And so photographs showed Integrity's crew working on the roof about 11 feet off the ground without fall protection equipment, without guardrails, and without a safety net. Um, and one important uh, fact here, Manish, is that the uh, Integrity crew did not contact Ireland Contracting during the inspection. So this is an image of the actual house? It is. Uh, what we see is a two-story roof line. So it must be maybe, again, on the rear elevation or over a garage or a wing of the house that, that would put workers at about 11 feet off the ground. And the uh, compliance officer did not see the use of guardrails, did Correct. not see any safety nets, right. and didn't see fall protection, the harnesses, and, and to tie off. Um, Here's an image of of an, the other job site, which the subcontractor there was William Miller Construction. That's right. And so same thing. So photographs showed Miller's crew working on the roof. This time, um, looks like, you know, for those of you um, listening in on the podcast, um, this is a, a, a house with, with multiple layers to the roof, um, sort of a tiered roof. And so uh, in this instance, the crew was about 20 feet off the ground. And, and again, same thing, no fall protection equipment, no guardrails, um, and no safety net. Um, there was a, a, an interesting part of, of this house is that uh, the crew um, erected some ladder jack scaffolds um, so as well. So there was a, some additional uh, violations that came into place with that. Right. Those those were violations in the use of the ladder jack scaffold. But 
but for today's purposes, those workers who were observed by the compliance officer allegedly working 20 feet off the ground allegedly did not have fall protection right. uh, guardrails or safety net either. Right. So, so the compliance officer makes these uh, observations and issues a citation, what, against Ireland or against Integrity and William Miller? Yeah, so it was against Ireland. So six citations in total, um, all against Ireland. Doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right. Uh, they weren't even con they didn't even know that an inspection had occurred. Um, uh, Ireland didn't know. exactly. Uh, let alone that they were potentially going to be the subject of citations. Um, and so, with respect to the forty one oh eight site, there was one citation for fall protection, and then there was additional citations punished with the forty eleven five site. Also for fall protection and scaffold safety, and. So Ireland Construction, the general contractor, right. completely unaware that the inspection is even taking place. Yes. No workers at either of these job sites. Right. Here's about it after the fact Yep. that you've been issued a citation. We went to a house where your workers weren't around. You didn't even know we were there. You had no exposure or um, control over the site, but you, you're going to get a citation for what these workers were, were allegedly engaged in. Yeah. Okay. So Ireland Contracting decides to issue a notice of contest. That's right. Um, and so this decision goes to an administrative law judge. And, uh, you know, as we've laid out here, I mean, the, the primary dispute is is whether Ireland contracting was responsible, you know, if, if they're the right party to cite at this instance. Um, and and then if they were, um, obviously, the four elements of, of the uh, of a prima facie OSA case uh, need to be met. Um, but I think we're, we're whether or not they're even the party that should be, uh, you know, listed here is is really the point of contention. Interesting way of uh, framing this, Taylor. I agree with you that an OSHA violation, in order for OSHA to make out a prima facie case, it has to allege four prima facie elements: that the standard was violated, that an employee was exposed, that the employer had knowledge of the condition or practice, and that there was a standard that that it was allegedly violated that actually applied, that the scope of the standard applied to the conduct uh, in question. And that all of that presupposes a threshold question. Was the party being cited an employer that would have had the employer knowledge or that had employees exposed, et cetera? Right. And so you're right that the administrative law judge first has to deal with that threshold question with respect to Ireland, the general contractor. OSHA makes three arguments that really they're alternative pleadings or alternative arguments. Right. You don't have to... Uh, accept all three of OSHA's assertions. You just have OSHA saying, well, here's three different ways that we think Ireland, the general contractor, could be the employer that's liable for these allegedly violative practices. And you don't have to accept all three of our alternative allegations for how Ireland's liable. You just have to, we, we could lose on two and you just have to find that we are right on any one of them. And we then have gotten to attaching this uh, allegation to Ireland, the general contractor. Uh, and we would have to lose on all three in order for you to say that Ireland wasn't responsible. We only have to win on one and lose on any of the two for you to say that Ireland is responsible here. Right. That's OSHA's assertion. That's OSHA's argument. Yep. And so the first <clears throat> the first argument is that Ireland should be treated as a direct employer um, of Integrity and Miller's employees, sort of a classic, you know, employer-employee relationship. Yeah, they're saying forget the middle guy, right. which was Integrity or Miller, depending on the job site. Forget about them. They are merely a pass-through. And Ireland was really, although they're not the legal employer, although they're not the employer, in fact, they were the 
sort of constructive employer. Let's right. say that way. De facto. Yep. Yeah, de facto yep. employer. Thank you. Yep. And uh, that's OSHA's argument as to why the activity allegedly engaged in by the employees of Integrity or the employees of Miller should be attributed to Ireland is that they're really the employer, de facto employer, a constructive employer, and that uh, that there's some facts that we can look at to to establish that these yes. are. Uh, they're 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 identified by a landmark headwater case in OSHA law, the Darden case, Darden restaurants. Yep. So we see again franchisor franchisee relationships and employers who are not the employer of a particular employee in the restaurant context being used as the headwater case for this, the Darden case, and the Darden test will be applied for this first theory. Yep, we'll talk about that a little. That's right. And then the second argument, uh, so if you don't accept the first one, OSHA says to the courts, um, our second argument is that Ireland and its subcontractors were co-employers. And so therefore, Ireland and its subcontractors together formed a single employer. Yeah, and they didn't really use the word co-employment um, or joint employment, uh, OSHA, but they that's really the theory they were going at, right. was this idea that if you don't find that Ireland was the direct de facto employer of these workers, then you should say that integrity and Miller co-employed these employers with Ireland. And we'll look at those factors. Uh, I argued, I think maybe the the landmark case in the 10th Circuit uh, on this subject uh, of co-employment and successfully, I'd say. Um, but I think that OSHA's taken a second run at it in the OSHA law context here and trying to establish that a general contractor could, even if they're not the direct employer, be co-employing these workers with their subcontractors. And then the last is that OSHA's, uh, you know, would would uh, offer some liability under OSHA's multi-employer worksite doctrine. Um, so under this doctrine, uh, OSHA proffers the theory that Ireland is a controlling employer, even if not an actual employer. So if you don't buy one and two, um, come to us here with number three, I, you know, they're a controlling employer of the subcontractor's employees, and therefore Ireland is still the proper entity to be cited. Yeah, this comes from an enforcement enforcement memo, and it's well established by OSHA that it believes that the employ the the multi employer worksite doctrine should be employed, even when you have a an entity that's not the employer of the workers engaged in the allegedly violative conduct, but that you have multiple distinct employers who cooperate on the same site. So this multi employer worksite doctrine contemplates the possibility that different and distinct employers could nevertheless be liable for the violations uh, alleged against the employees of a different work, uh, employer. Um, and and is, again, it's a, it's a longstanding enforcement doctrine that OSHA has, has asserted. And it says, alternatively, if you don't believe these first two arguments that Ireland was the actual employer or that Ireland was the co-employer, they're nevertheless an employer who is jointly responsible under the multi-employer worksite doctrine. Right. So let's talk about them one at a time. First, the idea that they were the direct employer of Integrities or Miller's workers. Right. And so as you mentioned, Manish, um, what courts will do when they're deciding whether or not there is a direct employer relationship is go through the Darden factors. Um, so there's a whole bunch of these, um, you know, control over the manner and means of accomplishing the work, I think is one of the one of the main ones. Um, but there's some others, uh, you know, hours worked, the right to assign additional projects, um, the skills required. Yeah, the who who's uh, sourcing the tools, um, who gets to determine the uh, manner, not only the manner in which the work was done, but uh, how payments flow, uh, whether the work performed by the 
employees was a part of the regular work of business of the general contractor in this case. Um, yeah, those are those are the kinds of factors. They look a lot like some of the elements of an independent contractor test. Yeah. Um, and so it's really just going to the the sort of ultimate question of who is the employer of these workers. Um, so they applied the Darden factors and they they said the, the administrative law judge did a very good job of going through each and every one and all of the facts alleged by OSHA and all of the facts argued by by um, uh, Ireland. And they came to the conclusion that, yeah, sure, some of the tools may have been sourced by Ireland, like like trailers, uh, but but the that's not by itself dispositive. You have to look at the the gestalt or the overall totality of all of these factors. And they found that Ireland didn't do much to control the manner and means of accomplishing work. They took an order from a customer and they passed that on to the the subcontractor, but they didn't tell them how to perform that work, when to perform the work, in what order work had to be done. Right. Um, they didn't assign hours of work. It's true that I, that Ireland gave a lot of work to Integrity and to Miller, but those companies, it was well-established, got work from other contractors. Indeed, Miller didn't even just do roofing. They did other types of work for other uh, general contractors. Right. Yeah, I thought the key distinction by the ALJ here was that uh, you know, Ireland had control maybe over the scope of work and that they, you know, had the customer relationship, but they didn't have any control over the workers themselves. Um, so, you know, they right. couldn't tell them when to come to work. They couldn't tell them how to get there. And so you sort of needed both, not just the scope of the work, but control over the workers. And because that was the sort of that missing link that Ireland wasn't the employer. Yeah, that's right. This is a, a argument that I make with courts trying to try and, uh, explain that sometimes some elements of the scope of work are passed through by the general contractor, but that's really uh, terms that originate with the customer right? and that the customer is dictating the scope of work in those cases. Uh, excellent point. Thank you, Taylor. So so then we get to this idea of uh, joint employment or co-employment, the idea that maybe, maybe uh, Integrity or William Miller formed a single employer with together with uh, Ireland, this idea that there, there's co-employment that they have a common work site. Uh, OSHA wants to allege that there are interrelated or integrated operations. Uh, but really, it's a slightly different kind of doctrine. When you have co-employment, you either have a common management or common supervision or common ownership between the two entities, or you have highly uh, interrelated or integrated operations. What I said to courts, including in the Tenth Circuit argument, was that this really, if you look at all of the cases where courts, and they're very few, where courts have found co-employment to exist, they fit a distinct and innumerable list of circumstances. One of them is a, a sister organization, uh, two subsidiaries of a parent in common. Mm -hmm. Another is uh, obviously a, a, a parent-child subsidiary of a, a parent corporation. Um, sometimes you'll find it with staffing, the use of staffing companies. But a subcontractor is not merely a staffing company. They're actually doing the work. They're not just leasing out employees. Staffing companies, sometimes they fit into two different models, but sometimes they just send employees and the um, customer is supposed to provide safety training and direct and supervise them all day long. Other times, staffing companies will provide their own supervisor as well. And they're specialists. They bring in employees who are already trained in a specialized field. But in that first kind of category, you might find that a court's willing to apply the co-employment doctrine because there is management, there is supervision, there is monitoring. 
Um, but that's what you'd have to get to to find co-employment or a single employer doctrine. Right. And in this case, the ALJ just said that those facts just didn't exist. Um, you know, he pointed to a bunch of different factors, um, you know, no shared work site, separate payrolls, no admi shared administrative space. You know, I pointed to the fact that Ireland uses subcontractors other than Integrity and, and WMC. So, um, you know, you have a whole bunch of different players as well. And um, in fact, you know, the foreman at the work site didn't even work for Ireland. So a bunch of different factors to kind of, you know, disprove this notion of a single employer. Yeah, I think that's right. And they didn't even know what was going on at any given day, which job sites were being tackled or, right, right. or what order work was done within a job site, et cetera, how the work got performed, whether or not the subcontractor would uh, use one of alternative methods to get up on the roof or to protect the the landscaping down below. That was all at the discretion of the of right. the subcontractor. Right. And and Ireland said we're really unaware of of what their own methods are. Okay, so that leaves OSHA. So so the administrative law judge refused to acknowledge Ireland as a direct employer, and they refused to find that a co-employment or a, a single employer theory applied in these cases. So that left OSHA with just one last remaining alternative theory, which is the multi-employer worksite doctrine. And again, I'll, I'll say what I've already said. I think that's a well-established doctrine in OSHA law. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there's sort of, you know, four uh, ways that, that um, in, in terms of the multi-employer worksite doctrine, there are, are four ways in which that, that OSHA looks at in terms of establishing that relationship. You can be a creating employer, um, an exposing employer, a correcting employer, or a controlling employer, which is what the, the court, or which is what OSHA tries to say that uh, Ireland was in this case, that they were a controlling employer. Um, so that's an employer who has you know supervisory authority over the work site, you know, the power to correct violations or to require others to correct violations. Yeah, and that's right. And so what we see is the multi-employer worksite doctrine is is put into practice by OSHA uh, as an allegation in in general contractor and subcontractor settings. In the case where two different subcontractors are co-located on the same job site, but neither contracts with the other. You'll see this with franchise or franchisee relationships right. that OSHA alleges the use of the multi-employer worksite doctrine. And you'll see it where service providers are co-located on a customer's worksite. So, so maybe they're providing services, um, repair, service, maintenance, uh, and it's not a general contractor, subcontractor. It's not uh, two different uh, subcontractors co-located. Um, and it's not a franchise or franchisee relationship. So that, that applies to a large fraction tailor of the work world when you look at all of those in uh, totality. And the other thing I'd say is it, it covers a lot of different sectors, not just construction, but fixed, fixed work sites like manufacturing of all types, uh, warehousing, the distribution, transportation sectors. Uh, you'll see this with even retail, maybe, maybe large format retail, for example. Uh, or, or uh, the moderate or regular traditional retail settings where service uh, providers are coming on, or even just delivery to a work site. So, or, or any, as I said before, any kind of service or maintenance, OSHA will consider whether to apply in any of those circumstances. Theoretically, it will evaluate whether the multi-employer worksite doctrine might, might apply. What it's trying to do is get at more than just one employer Right. Maybe it gets to elect the employer it wishes to pick to attach liability to. Maybe OSHA will allege uh, violations, the same violation against multiple different employers under this kind of approach. 
So that's why the multi-employer worksite doctrine is so critically important. And this case is such a critically important uh, topic to be discussed in the OSHA 3030. And I especially like the way the administrative law judge meticulously applied each fact to all three of these theories yeah. of law that OSHA tried alternatively. Yeah. So the last issue, as you say, is the the controlling employer um, element of the multi-employer worksite doctrine. Right. And in going through the factors that we talked about, you know, general supervisory authority, the power to correct violations, the ALJ admonished finds that Ireland was not a controlling employer in this case. Um, you know, no control over how the work was completed, you know, including the hours worked in a day, the length of the time of the project. And they just weren't, the, the facts just didn't lend to that conclusion that Ireland was controlling in this case. What it requires, that's right, Taylor, what it requires in order for OSHA to allege that an employer is the controlling employer is that the controlling employer is more than just able to control engaging or disengaging a subcontractor. Mm -hmm. They must have reserved power to correct safety and health violations. They have, must have reserved power to, to monitor and supervise for safety compliance or to, to uh, monitor for safety violations. And OSHA has the ability to not just show that in the four corners of the contract between the two contracting parties, but but could also alternatively show that there was an actual exercise of that kind of control, even if it wasn't reserved to the contracting party in the contract itself. And so there's a lot of opportunity for OSHA to show that an entity was a controlling employer. In this particular case, there was no evidence, right. according to the administrative law judge, that the contract had allocated to Ireland that kind of contractual power or that on a day-to-day -day basis, Ireland exerted that kind of power. Indeed, in these two cases, Ireland wasn't even around wasn't on the job site. Exactly. And so couldn't have exercised any such power. Um, it's true, though, and OSHA points out that after the inspection date, Ireland provided, I think, harnesses or other fall protection uh, equipment to these two subcontractors. Yeah. But the administrative law just says that's not evidence that they had power. They didn't force anyone to use it. They right. didn't have the power to force anyone to use it. Uh, the fact that they're providing equipment that makes workers safer does not translates to the kind of ingredients that OSHA needs to establish in uh, establishing a controlling employer sort of scenario. Right. Interesting uh, analysis. And in this case, this is a case of a small employer that, that fought back and won on all three counts, uh, on all three alternative arguments as to why it should be held liable. That's right. Uh, you know, to tie it up, the ALJ finds that that the secretary that OSHA failed to establish Ireland's liability under all three of their theories and all, all citation items were vacated. Um, you know, certainly a, a very interesting case and, and kudos to Ireland for fighting back. Well, I think, I think that's right. And I think that OSHA really should have established its allegations against the right party. It would have had better results. It would have met with yeah. maybe, maybe uh, it, there's, there's only the opportunity to speculate now, but it's theoretically possible that they would have prevailed in some of these citation items, right. had they just chosen to discipline themselves to issue the citation against the uh, party that was maybe less disputably the direct employer of those workers. Yep. And uh, instead, they lost everything because they they wanted to try and attach themselves and their allegations against a an employer that had, uh, according to the LJ, nothing to do with these alleged um, alleged violations or conduct that was alleged to be violative. Yeah. Uh, so so that's, I think, a, an important lesson for employers across the spectrum of sectors and throughout 
the large number of uh, uh, employers that that form our OSHA 3030 community here at Keller and Hackman. Uh, so let's talk about, in light of this, what we think employers ought to do. Yeah. So first, um, you know, make sure that there's a contractual allocation of duties when you have a contractor, you know, subcontractor relationship. Um, to make sure that the some of the duties that we talked about, Monish, um, you know, monitoring, um, you know, who's responsible for the correction of safety violations, those should be spelled out in the contract. In this case, there was actually no contracts between Ireland and its subcontractors, written, right. written contracts, which, you know, although the facts ended up, you know, bearing light in, in, in court, um, you know, that certainly didn't set Ireland up for success to be able to have a quick defense. Like, look, the contract clearly spells out, you know, who's responsible for 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 each, um, you know, duty here. So that's it's certainly true, nor yeah. did it uh, set up OSHA for a quick success either. <laughs> there being no contractual true, provisions true. that ascribed duty to Ireland. Right, right. Uh, and I think that this con- concept of a contract, really the process at the employers with really well-established safety and health programs starts even earlier than that. When, when a contracting party puts a contract out to bid and identifies the criteria for proposals in its request for proposals, it has the opportunity to allocate responsibility for safety and health, training, equipment, safety and health equipment, et cetera, right. to the person submitting the request for proposal and to have them explain how they intend to do this job and how they tend to do the job safely. Uh, so it, it starts even before the contract in, in the request for proposals and screening out of of uh various uh, proposal writing parties, which which brings us to the next one, which is that subcontractors really should um, t- ha- bring in to the to the equation their own training, their own equipment, their own personal protective equipment, uh, and a, a and an opportunity to explain what their own track record is for safety and health and their their uh, process, their methodology, et cetera. Right. And subcontractors should also retain records of contract of correctional actions, and the general contractors should require this. Um, I think having those records um, is another way that a general contractor can show that the subcontractor is the one responsible um, for for safety violation for correcting safety violations at the worksite, and that could be another way to sort of clearly delineate between the the contractor and the subcontractor. And at least in one model of uh, a relationship between two parties, that may be the end of it. Contractors should review the subcontractors' uh, safety practices, their proposal for how they intend to do it safely, but then they should allocate that duty to actually fulfill, to to train employees, to monitor, to correct uh, their own employees. That should be allocated to the subcontractor in the face of the contract. And then after that, in uh, an everyday living exercise between the two parties. So that's the last thing I'd say as goes to the relationship between the two parties. But I think when an employer is cited, either using the multi-employer worksite doctrine or these other two ideas of co-employment or what, what the term you used, I thought was appropriate, uh, ascribing to an employer that they were the de facto employer of some other employees, um, employ, uh, workers. I, I think that the the next and last thing that we can say to those parties who receive a citation is that they they ought to push back as Ireland did, yeah. and in, in Ireland's case successfully, on the idea that they are indeed somehow responsible for the alleged conduct of some other employer's employees. Yeah, absolutely. You you got you got um, Ireland here to to push OSHA to say what are your theories? They put up three, and then the ALJ was able to go through them, um, and so you know in, in the in the 
uh, process of doing that, Ireland was able to win at the end of the day. I applaud them and their counsel who who constructed a carefully crafted argument. And he he complained to the judge that Osho's uh, theories, these alternative theories, didn't really crystallize until shortly before the trial. But I think that gives a teaching point to other practitioners to together with their clients to make sure you force a clarification of the theories to be applied at trial well in advance so that you can marshal the evidence during the discovery stage. Uh, now, as a uh, consequence, and thanks to the Council for Ireland, uh, future employers have a clearer roadmap of whether or not they, when evaluating this question, whether or not they have a good case for defending themselves that they're not properly um, citable under the multi-employer worksite doctrine or these other two theories, direct employment or co-employment. Uh, and I think that this case will stand as a good uh, reference to cite to for future future citations. Exactly. Well, that's that's the OSHA 3030 for November 2000, 2023. Thank you, Taylor, for joining us. Uh, the entire library of the more than past 10 years or over 120 episodes of OSHA 3030 material can be found on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. Check them out. Some of those topics are re as relevant and educational and informative today as they were when they were first recorded years ago. Um, this episode will join that library and will be uh, republished as a podcast. So catch it on your favorite podcast channel or app and, and be sure to subscribe to it so that it just automatically downloads. Catch it while you're commuting. Uh, and and share this uh, uh, episode with others uh, within your organization. Don't forget that the only uh, registration fee we seek for the great material that we provide every month in the field of occupational safety and health law is that you forward your invitations, your email invitations to at least three others, not only within your organization, but at other organizations, because that is going to ensure the future of the program. So please take a few minutes to forward the email that you received us maybe deep in your inbox uh, from a week or two ago or earlier this week, forward it on to three others at other organizations and at your organization so that that they get the benefit that you're getting out of the OSHA 3030 as well. Education is what makes all workplaces safer after all. Uh, the next thing I'd say is uh, our next episode will be at 1 p.m. Eastern, December 13th, 2023. Uh, also pre-recorded, I predict, based on what I already know about December 13th. <laughs> and, uh, and so please uh, keep that on your calendar and make sure if you can't uh, make that date that you catch it as a podcast or on our website through YouTube. Our sister programs uh, covering the REACH 3030 and TOSCA 3030, uh, the next episodes will be on December 6th at 10 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern, respectively. Great programs. If you're an organization that's responsible for compliance with REACH or TOSCA, make sure you subscribe and pass the good word on to others in your organization and other organizations that are responsible for compliance with REACH and TOSCA. Uh, Taylor, thank you very much. This is uh, now, we've been doing this for over 10 years. For many uh, years of that uh, series, we've been supported by one of our great colleagues, Caroline Mills, whose last week is this week. So we wish to express and extend a special thanks to Caroline Mills, who will be moving on to greater things after a number of years on our team. Uh, thank you. And on behalf of everyone in the OSHA 3030 listening community, thank you, Caroline, for all, all that you've done for this program. Uh, and thanks to our team here at Keller Heckman for helping make this program a success as well. We uh, look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>